Hello to you. This is the Coin Market Recap Podcast. I'm Connor Sefton with Coin Market Cap's easy to understand look at what's happened in crypto over the past seven days. Give our show a follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts for a new episode every Friday. This week, Bitcoin could be on the brink of record highs. We'll be talking to a man who believes the cryptocurrency's price is going to infinity and that Bitcoin will replace cash. Plus, could Coinbase's new NFT marketplace kill off OpenSea? What's the new crypto scam that people on dating sites need to look out for? And have a couple who had $700,000 stolen from their Coinbase account been treated fairly? Coin Market Caps Molly Jane Zuckerman will be here with a look at this week's news. But first, let's take a look at how the crypto market is performing. Drum roll, please. Bitcoin is up. That's right. Bitcoin is still heading up as of Friday, October 15th. That's the day we are recording this. The world's biggest cryptocurrency is approaching $60,000. That means it's just $5,000 away from setting a new all-time high. And who knows, it could happen within days. The crypto markets are buzzing amid speculation that the US Securities and Exchange Commission might be about to approve a Bitcoin exchange-traded fund for the first time. Although this ETF would only be based on Bitcoin futures, this could be a significant milestone that would allow institutional investors to gain indirect exposure to crypto. Bitcoin surge means that El Salvador is sitting on a healthy profit of about $4 million. The country bought a total of 700 Bitcoin last month after adopting the cryptocurrency as legal tender. President Nayib Bekele has announced that some of this profit is going to be spent on building a hospital for pets, complete with emergency clinics, operating rooms and rehabilitation areas. A mock-up of the facility suggests it will be called Chivo Pets, meaning it would have the same name as the government's official Chivo wallet. But some Salvadorans think Bekele has his priorities wrong, with some sharing videos of dirty bathrooms in hospitals for humans. Others complained that medical supplies are running low, and some are waiting months for surgeries. The CEO of America's biggest bank has doubled down on his criticism of Bitcoin, describing it as worthless. Here's what JP Morgan's Jamie Dimon said at the Institute of International Finance earlier this week. I personally think that Bitcoin is worthless, but I don't want to be exposed to it. I don't care. It makes no difference to me. Our clients are adults. They disagree. That's what makes markets. So if they want to have access to buy or sell Bitcoin, you know, we, it's hard, we can't custody it, but we can give them legitimate, as clean as possible access. Well, not only do some of his clients disagree with him, but the CEOs of other banks do too. Morgan Stanley's James Gorman told analysts on an earnings call this week that he doesn't think crypto is a fad and that assets like Bitcoin are here to stay. He said... I don't know what the value of Bitcoin should or shouldn't be, but these things aren't going away and the blockchain technology supporting it is obviously very real and powerful. Although Morgan Stanley doesn't allow retail clients to directly trade cryptocurrencies at the moment, Gorman also suggested that this could change in the future. The US has overtaken China to become the world's biggest hub for Bitcoin mining. 
Data from the Cambridge Centre for Alternative Finance reveals that America had a 35.4% share of the global hash rate. That's a term that describes the total computational power devoted to processing transactions and mining new coins. It comes after Beijing stepped up its crackdown on cryptocurrencies. The Chinese mainland had a 46% share of the global hash rate back in April, but this has now plummeted to zero after miners fled the country. Other countries have also seen their share of the global hash rate go up, including Russia, Kazakhstan, Malaysia and Canada. A senior Bank of England official has warned that a massive collapse in crypto prices is a plausible scenario. Sir John Cunliffe fears the crypto markets could one day destabilise some of the world's biggest economies because of how assets like Bitcoin are being connected to the financial system. In his speech, he pointed to how the total market cap of cryptocurrencies stands at $2.4 trillion. But the subprime mortgage market, which triggered the 2007 financial crisis, was worth just one $1.2 trillion. Although he said crypto can deliver radical improvements in financial services, he said regulation must be pursued as a matter of urgency. In other news, a former UK Chancellor has joined the crypto custody firm Copper as a senior advisor. Lord Philip Hammond, who was one of the most powerful people in the government until 2019, has been tasked with promoting the UK as a global leader in digital asset technology. He's warned the UK is in danger of falling behind other countries when it comes to regulating cryptocurrencies, and that this is a huge risk to the success of the nation's financial services sector. Coinbase is calling for one regulator to be made responsible for digital assets markets and for cryptocurrencies to be treated differently to other financial instruments. The exchange says it is engaged in months of discussions with regulatory experts and government officials and that cryptocurrencies do not neatly fit into the current structure set up to monitor financial activity. Coinbase argues that its proposals would deliver strong investor protection and give legal certainty to businesses that use digital assets. It also warned forcing the crypto sector to follow laws that were drafted before computers were invented will have profoundly harmful economic implications. The company also said millions continue to pay too much and wait too long to transfer funds to loved ones overseas or to invest their money directly in projects and ideas they care about. It would be a big deal for the crypto industry if Coinbase's demands were met, but getting approval from Congress might be a different matter. This week's crypto headlines. Ladies and gentlemen, Molly Jane Zuckerman is here. <laughs> I played the cannon just for you. Wow. It's an amazing introduction. Thank you. I've never been introduced like that before. <laughs> well, we've got a nervous wait because if you were listening last week, we were discussing the fact that Molly Jane lives near a fortress where there's a cannon and at the time we're talking it should go off in about five minutes so we're both nervously waiting as to whether or not we'll actually hear it (laughs) i mean i'll hear it i'm gonna hear hear it it. but will we that's the question oh yes so have you had a good week molly jane i've actually had a fantastic week that's good to hear my week's been fairly mixed so Again, if you were listening last week, we talked about the fact that something was happening for me. And basically, this was my this was my fiance's idea. She she loves um she loves the Great British Bake Off. 
You might know it as the Great British Baking Show if you're in the US. But anyway, they've got this separate TV show which basically discusses what happens on each episode. And you can go and watch, you can go and watch this show and you can take in something you've baked. And uh, Maddie wanted to do this, so that's fine. So we both baked something. Maddie's broken her leg, so she made her leg in a cast. Um, And of course, Bagel, my hamster, I decided to make him in bread form. (laughs) And um, we got interviewed and we were featured on this show. It's on Channel 4 in the UK. And um, well, what I didn't realise or what I'd forgotten (laughs) is the fact that at the end of each show, they actually decide um, who was the best baker in the audience and who was the worst baker. And this is basically what happened. I've now got the devastating task of announcing the baker to leave the studio because their bake was embarrassing, even by our low standards. (laughs) And the judges have decided the baker who will be leaving the studio is... his hamster rat cake <laughs> bagel bagel oh sorry Connor <laughs> he called it a hamster rat cake a hamster rat cake <laughs> first of all bagel is not a rat second of all that was not a cake so right it was a loaf and you know what's even worse right other people in the audience have brought stuff in to bake right and they used right one of them made a focaccia and they used nail glue. They used nail glue in a loaf of bread. And I'm the worst baker. Well, Connor, I have to ask, did you actually try your bagel bread? Yes. And so did bagel. <laughs> <laughs> he, he but was, well, um, was it good? He was nibbling on one of the ears. It was really good. I made good bread. It's just I've never made it in, um, in hamster form before. Okay, so then the show is rude. <laughs> you can't eat nail glue bread. Um, you can't eat nail glue bread now. <laughs> oh, God. I would like to award you the best bread baker on the Coin Market Cap podcast team. <laughs> that's a very yeah. Uh, that's, that's a very niche reward. I will take it. I will take it. Um, <laughs> thank I you. please don't turn it down. That would be so embarrassing. Oh, I won't turn it down. One more minute. One more minute until the cannon. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Right, okay guys. Right, we're going to we're going to we're going to have a moment's silence and we're going to try and see if we can hear this. This should happen in about 30 seconds. So hopefully if you listen, does it go off bang on bang on noon? Yeah, and so I'm kind of angling my computer and my own headphones as right. close to the window as possible. <laughs> right, okay. So 15 seconds and then that will herald the start of when we'll actually talk about news. All right, 10 seconds. I'm really listening closely. <laughs> Did you hear it? I heard Did you hear gentle, it? Gentle, <laughs> very gently. <laughs> Are you underwhelmed? <laughs> um, I think um, it could have it could have had more impact. It needed more cowbell, is how I'd describe it. But um, it yeah. needed more cowbell. <laughs> okay well Uh, i'm so glad we shared that moment together i'm sorry that you were the most embarrassing (laughs) baker 
Um, But, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? Indeed. And in fact, I actually mentioned on the show that I... um, I write about cryptocurrencies and the host went, oh, everybody, we've got a new friend. Ooh, so that's a good sign. <laughs> okay, so you were doing some marketing. That's fine. Yeah, they did cut out the one bit that I did say because he went, oh, any advice? And I was just like, be careful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. Okay, then. So anyway, we best talk about news. So, Molly Jane, there's been lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of NFT news this week, hasn't there? Yep, so much. And the big one, this is the real biggie, Coinbase has announced that they are launching their very own NFT marketplace. Yeah, and it has the most creative name in crypto. So it's an NFT platform (laughs) on Coinbase, and it's called Coinbase NFT. (laughs) Right. The person who came up with that name needs a raise. They need a raise. Mm -hmm. It's genius. It's almost as good as Bitcoin Magazine, um, yes, which, yes. if you don't know, is one of the first magazines about Bitcoin. Well, you mean it's got to do what it says on the tin, right? I mean, I can't really, I can't really fault them for. I mean, like OpenSea, you can look at OpenSea and go, "What the hell do they do?" So I, I kind of get that. Mm, I don't know, but yeah. Anyway, <laughs> they um, <laughs> they've been teasing this platform for a while. And now they said it will launch by the end of the year. And there's a few things that make it different than other NFT platforms. Mm -hmm. So one of the things is that it's going to be combining a sort of social media feed. And I'm imagining a Venmo-like situation um, where, you know, looking at Venmo, looking at how people spend their money all of a sudden becomes a way to uh, mindlessly scroll on your phone. Um, the second thing they're doing that's different is that the, the NFTs, they say, won't be locked to the platform, which means they'll be able to move them to other platforms, which is something that, for example, Nifty Gateways doesn't allow you to do, which makes it um, more, how can I say, L- loose, flexible. Mm-hmm. Put your NFTs wherever yeah. you want them. Um The third thing that sets them apart from other NFT platforms is that while OpenSea numbers, from what I've been able to see, they have about 140,000 active wallets doing things a week. Coinbase, as of last quarter, had 54 million active users. So that is a huge audience that you're giving access to NFTs. So Mm -hmm. those are some important facts to know about why Coinbase NFT platform could, could, could compete. Now, this is the thing, though. I mean, are we talking about competing or are we talking about bulldozing the competition? Because um, it emerged um, on Wednesday, uh, Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase, said more than one million people had already signed up to the waitlist for the imaginatively named Coinbase NFT in a single day. So should OpenSea be worried right now. I mean, is it possible that this could kill off what currently is the world's biggest NFT marketplace? Well, like I said before, since you will be able to move the NFTs around to different platforms, that's one reason why why uh, OpenSea could still exist. You know, you're moving the NFTs to whatever platform suits your fancy that day. But it is reminding me a little bit of Clubhouse. Do you remember Clubhouse? 
that was a big deal for a month. <laughs> yes. And then when <laughs> and then when uh Twitter spaces happened, um I don't know. I forgot Clubhouse ever existed. So yeah. And that makes me kind of sad in a way, just when when a giant comes in and and makes the new startups irrelevant. I would be sad, oh, I don't know. This is too personal of an opinion. I would be sad if Coinbase NFT came in and OpenSea shut down. That would just be annoying. That's not the kind of thing that's supposed to happen in the decentralized crypto space. But the thing is, and we talked about this before, one thing that Coinbase says and the point that they make is that at the moment, trying to create or purchase NFTs, they say that the user experience is lacking. And that's probably a pointed statement towards OpenSea. So surely if OpenSea wants to kind of beat this and survive, they need to up the ante and make it easier to use. Yeah, but I feel like one of the main things that's actually preventing more NFT adoption is the high gas fees. And since the Coinbase Mm. NFT marketplace is going to be on Ethereum in the first place, then you still could be paying... I mean, in some extreme cases, gas fees that cost more than the NFT themselves. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I'm 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 skeptical that Coinbase will make it so much easier if they're still going to be on Ethereum. No, that's a very good point. Um, and of course, like we said, this isn't the only NFT news this week because TikTok have now started auctioning off top moments. These are some of the most kind of popular videos that have been uploaded to the site in the past and they're now being sold off in tokenized form and the first one that they're doing is Curtis Roach very catchy song called Bored in the House we've got a clip let's have a listen okay I'm bored in the house and I'm in the house bored bored in the house and I'm in the house bored bored in the motherfucker in the house bored and I'm bored in the motherfucker in the house bored bored in the house bored in the house bored bored in the house bored in the house bored I love that song it's so good it's so good so that was released last year when lockdown restrictions started um and the nft is a reimagined version of this video it's a collaboration with coin artist who's quite a well-known nft creator what do you make of this molly jane oh it's fantastic i would love to get a tiktok nft it's just like the silliest possible Mm. thing you could imagine it's embarrassing that i'm on tiktok this often and I think it would be a really funny uh, reminder of my quarantine late 20s if I had a TikTok NFT. It's perfect. It's genius. I've got an unpopular opinion about this. Let's hear it. Um, now, bear in mind, in my case, the only reason <laughs> the only reason I'm on TikTok is because um, I have a sister who is much, much, much younger than me. She has just turned... Um, 18 and um, you know she's TikTok's core audience like about a third of TikTok's users are 10 to 19 years old right and my my problem with this is firstly are people actually going to buy an NFT of a video which they can watch as much as they want um, on the platform anyway whether they buy the NFT or not and secondly I mean this is hardly an NFT that a teenager will be able to buy with their pocket money or the money from their Saturday job. I mean, at the time we're talking, the current highest bid for this Curtis Roach NFT is $25,000, right? So surely, haven't TikTok really missed a trick by making sure that the NFTs that they're selling 
are actually affordable to their core audience? Well, hold on. I think that you're conflating TikTok's core audience and the NFT's core audience. and I don't think they have to be the same because I think these NFT sales can do very well by targeting people like me that have more money and are in their late 20s and uh, are buying tickets, uh, buying tickets, buying NFTs for maybe more ironic reasons. Um, yeah, if you wanted the 18-year-old TikTok users to buy NFTs, then you should cap them at, you know, $100. But I don't think that they're Basically, I don't think that TikTok is trying to educate people about NFTs by letting them play with them, use them, and buy them. I think that TikTok is trying to make a lot of money. (laughs) And in that case, they're doing it right. Yeah, fair enough. And um, one thing that is good as well about TikTok is, you know, this is specifically designed to support creators. So most of the proceeds from these sales will go towards the artists who are you know, um, creating stuff on TikTok, which can only be a good thing. I mean, sometimes it's a terrible thing. (laughs) Have you seen some of those videos? (laughs) Like the thirst, have you seen the new series of of, of thirst traps where like shirtless 18 year old men have conversations with the screen as if you're their girlfriend, but then the girlfriend will actually join the conversation with like doll hands. (laughs) Have you seen this? What are you no, talking okay. about? <laughs> I don't, I don't, I just feel like I'm well, pulled into like an alternative universe or something. Gosh. I'm not sure if this is relevant for our podcast. You can decide this later, but there is um, a new TikTok trend of, you know, um, a, a, an e-boy that thinks he's very attractive looking at the camera and having a conversation with you. And the text will be there for you to answer. It'll be something like his, his role will be, hey, baby, why are you so sad? And then you'll answer, oh, I don't know. I guess you're supposed to just talk to the screen. And he'll say, come here for a hug. And you'll say, oh, that's so sweet. But as like your text is supposed to be said out loud by you, I guess sitting alone in your room, the perspective of the camera, these two like doll hands will kind of come out and start like touching the boy's face. And you have to wonder who's controlling the hands, like who's filming this and who is this directed at? (laughs) I'll send it to you after this really can't wait for that um but um but like going going more mainstream though i mean there was um there was a report by city this week the wall street bank and they were saying that companies that could benefit from nfts include disney electronic arts viacom cbs uh companies basically with intellectual property tv characters and movies that can be turned into merchandise the real the real losers would be um, shops that sell, physical stores that sell things like video games. So that could be like GameStop especially. But what was really weird, Molly Jane, is a day later, Viacom CBS um, signed a deal, which means that they'll be making NFTs based on the TV shows and movies in its portfolio, uh, which is quite a big deal. I mean, this is a company that owns MTV, CBS, Comedy Central, um, channel 5, that's a UK channel, which is renowned for soft pornography and Hitler documentaries, um, and Nickelodeon. Well, I'm not surprised by this. Um, my best friend worked for Legendary Pictures, which is the film studio that did The Hangover, uh, Godzilla movies, and already last year he did their their marketing uh, product placement. He was signing NFT deals for them to promote all the new movies coming out in the next few years. So Hollywood is not sleeping on this. Hollywood is is getting ahead. They're 
they're watching TikTok, you know, they're seeing the pulse, the pulse of the youth of the nation, Connor. Well, you see, this is, this is, I think this is more appealing to people who are in their like late 20s, early 30s, because of course, Viacom CBS, they own the likes of SpongeBob SquarePants, Star Trek, and, you know, really popular franchises. And we will see NFTs of these emerge. So that's, that's really exciting. That excites me more than an NFT of a random TikTok video. I mean, I wonder how much someone would pay for a SpongeBob NFT. And I have to think it would be millions of dollars. Well, why do they always have to be millions of dollars? Why can't they just make them cheap? I just like, why do they always have to be ridiculous prices? It really winds me up. Uh, And the last thing I was going to mention, Molly Jane, is McDonald's China releasing some Big Mac NFTs this week. I actually think, you know, McDonald's and other places have done this before. But when I was writing this story, I got into what Burger King was doing. And I actually missed this at the time. And what they're doing is they're putting QR codes on meal boxes, right? And what happens is if you create, if you collect all three NFTs in a collection, you unlock a fourth NFT and then you get prizes. And they could include having Whopper burgers for an entire year or having a phone call with a celebrity I mean, that's a really exciting use case for NFTs. That's a bit different, isn't it? I mean, honestly, this all sounds fantastic. Every piece of NFT news this week, the TikTok, the Disney stuff, or sorry, the Nickelodeon, Viacom, NFTs, McDonald's, Burger King. It's just, I don't know. I really like to see big companies experimenting with things that used to be so incredibly niche. Warms my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, we're on to a bit more of a serious story now, and um, we're going to talk about oh, romance no. scams. I know. So, um, classically, the romance scam kind of would involve someone on a dating site falling victim to a person who is asking them to send money to them, often for what seem to be really compelling reasons. Perhaps a family member needs medical treatment or perhaps they need money to travel over, stuff like this. Um, And of course, dating sites and the people who use them have become a bit wiser to these types of romance scams. But now um, a new report, Molly Jane, says that these fraudsters are getting a bit more sophisticated. Yeah, so what this new report said is that people will go on dating sites, these bad actors, and ask their matches to join an unbeatable crypto investment opportunity. And I can only assume that they're using cryptocurrency because of the idea that crypto is anonymous online magical money that can't be, you know, easily found. Um Every time I hear of people using crypto for criminal activities, I just want to shake them and be like, the blockchain records everything. That's the point. It's public. So I, I can only hope that in the future it will be possible to, you know, maybe even return some of the victim's money. Is that too much to hope for? Probably. Um, but um, Sophos estimates that victims in the US and Europe have lost about $1.4 million so far to what they call crypto com crooks. Now, bearing in mind romance scams overall, and this is in the US alone, 
cost victims $300 million last year. And that was up 50% on the year before. But what's really scary with this new type of romance scam is how it works. Because essentially what these scammers get their victims to do, the scammers get administrative power over the victim's phone. And then that way, um, they can kind of be doing some malicious things behind the scenes. And this way, they can actually get the victim to download apps that aren't authorised by Apple's App Store. Um, And these apps can look like a genuine trading platform. But as Sofo says, um, the investments that someone makes aren't used to buy any sort of crypto. Trades and profits reported by the app are imaginary. If you're allowed to withdraw your profits, they'll only give you a tiny bit of your money back. And when you want to cash out your investment, you realise it's all smoke and mirrors and it's a pyramid or a Ponzi scheme. So this is really scary and it's really sophisticated. It's way more complex than I first thought. It's not just a send me one Bitcoin, I'll send you two back. This is like a whole fake. Yeah, this is scary. This is a lot. Yeah. Maybe I could even fall for this if I wasn't happily married. (laughs) (laughs) Good save. Good save. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, But, you know, and this is the thing, dating apps, you know, when people feel enamored, it's easy to let emotions get in the way of, you know, rational judgment. And so people are being urged now to think twice if these messages on dating apps turn from the flirtatious to the financial to never give administrative control over a, dice, uh, over a device without good reason. A good reason often is if it's a work phone that you have, your company might expect you to give this control over so they can make any necessary security updates. And most importantly of all, listen carefully to the family and friends who might be trying to warn you about what's happening. I mean, the amount of cases where people have not only lost money to these romance scams, but they've ended up being isolated from their loved ones. It's heartbreaking. Yeah, I mean, I think this is something we've talked about a few weeks in a row now, but it's very rare that a stranger on the internet is going to go very much out of his or her way to make sure that you have more money. That's just not, Mm -hmm. that doesn't make any sense. So, you know, Mm -hmm. look at things with a very, a more critical eye when you're interacting online with strangers whom you've never met. That's my advice. Yeah, dispassionate eye. That's good advice. Um, and also, finally, Molly Jane, this is another theme that we've been returning to quite a bit recently. And it's customer service. Now, Coinbase, they received thousands of complaints, according to CNBC, about their customer service. And there was a backlash. And now, in line with Robinhood, they're launching a 24-7 hotline in the UK, the US, Germany, and Japan. Uh, There was a story this week about a couple who lost $700,000 of their life savings after falling for what's thought to be a phishing scam. And they just ended up watching helplessly as their account was drained of Bitcoin. Here's a clip of what they told a CNBC investigation. Somebody had done 110 different transactions, sending out about 21 Bitcoin. So that was before the phone line came in and they called it Molly Jane and they got even more frustrated because the person on the phone couldn't access their case file. What's going wrong here? Why is it so hard for exchanges to offer good customer service? 
Well, I don't know. I mean, it's not like Coinbase is a decentralized exchange, you know, where there's no person working there that's able to help. It's a centralized exchange. They have a customer. They have a number you can call. I mean, I have to say this case does really have me perplexed because, you know, sometimes people will tweet about a hack or a phishing or a lost fund or something and exchanges or people will get the money back somehow. And I'm not sure why in this case it's kind of being met by silence. They lost 21 Bitcoin. That's a lot of Bitcoin. Well, this is the tricky thing because this couple and their name is Eric and Molly Richardson. What seems to have happened is Eric got a message um, to his phone, a text, saying that someone had logged into his account. So he obviously, in a panic, ended up clicking on the link and then logging in. So the scammer would have had his login details. He then was notified that his two-factor authentication was changed and was essentially helpless as, I think he said, 110 different Bitcoin transactions took place. Now, the reason Coinbase haven't made him whole, but they did make about 6,000 victims whole earlier in the year, was because in the case that was earlier this year with those other victims, it was down to a flaw in Coinbase's SMS account recovery process. So the exchange's argument here is, our systems were working fine, this was you being sloppy, sorry, we can't give you your money back. Ugh, I don't know. I don't know, because I think a lot of people are fished. And I think if crypto exchanges gave money back to everyone that was fished in this way, they might not be able to run because there's just so many scams, which is sad, but true. I don't know. What are your thoughts on it? Do you think Coinbase should give the money back? Um, I think it's tricky because, first of all, you've got the fact that people hardworking people are losing their funds through no fault of their own. They are being duped by texts which look really legitimate. Sometimes, especially in the UK, texts can appear to come from banks because the name of the contact on these texts is listed as Halifax or HSBC or NatWest. The other side of the coin, though, is the fact that people could end up um, being more sloppy if they know if they know that an exchange will have their back if they lose their funds, this could encourage people to be a bit more relaxed when it comes to security measures. And that could mean that more funds are lost. Um, I think it's a really good idea for exchanges to have like a fund that's set aside, like take a proportion of the transaction fees so that there's a fund to compensate people in really egregious circumstances. But overall, I mean, people need to be educated, including by Coinbase, to use cold storage, to use hardware wallets. And when things go wrong, there needs to be a phone line where they can get through to someone immediately who can help with their case. The fact that these people rang up phone the, the phone support and were told, sorry, we don't have your case file, I don't think that's acceptable. Not if you lost $700,000. <laughs> I would like no, to think not. I would be considered like a gold star client in that case, if that much money had yeah. disappeared. Well, in that case, though, it gets worse because mm. they eventually had access restored to their account and then they received just $500 worth of Bitcoin from Coinbase for the inconvenience. And the guy said it felt like they kicked sand in my face. I lost 21 Bitcoin and I got $500. Why would why would they even give them $500? It's like give them nothing or give them everything. <laughs> it's like I don't understand the logic there. Right, I know. 
I don't, yeah, I don't get it. Going back to what you said earlier, I don't see an incentive for Coinbase to tell people to use hardware wallets because they don't have one. They're a business. Why would they tell you to go use someone else's business? Yeah, but if they really if they really care about their customers, they won't want them to see they won't want to see their customers lose money like this. And also, if Coinbase continue to receive customer service complaints like this, people won't want to use Coinbase. So it's in their interest to offer more education or to offer hardware wallets of their own or do something just to make sure that client funds are safe. Yeah, I just I don't think I'll see the day when Coinbase will say, you know, you really should be buying a ledger. <laughs> um, mm. Maybe they'll yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe they'll make their own someday after their Coinbase NFT. I bet I have the perfect name for their hard wallet. It would be called <laughs> the Coinbase hard wallet. Um, mm -hmm. Molly Jane, um, Brian Armstrong's just been on the line. Um, he wants to talk to you about a marketing opportunity. Uh, he wants you to join the team. <laughs> Tell him I'll call him back when he finds my case file. <laughs> Ooh, shots fired. That didn't make any sense. Well, then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us, Molly Jane, on the imaginatively named... Well, actually, we, you know, we are. You know, Coin Market Recap. You know, we've taken it, we've taken it in a new it's direction. It's an amazing name. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us. And little doubt we will speak next week. All right. Talk to you then. Coin market recap. The crypto markets are filled with all sorts of people. There are some who invest $100 here or there for fun. Others love chasing gains in the altcoin markets, plowing their cash into little known projects. And there's also a band of hardcore investors who have gone all in on Bitcoin. They believe it has the potential to transform the global economy in the coming years and even replace cash. One of them is Dennis Porter, and he joins me now. He's a host of shows on his YouTube channel, including The Update, and he's also involved in the world of politics. Hi, Dennis. How are you? Hey, how's it going, Connor? Really uh, happy to be on the show with you today. Thanks for inviting me on. Oh, pleasure. Thank you for coming on. So you're a Bitcoin maximalist. Can you tell us in simple terms what this means and what you believe is going to happen to Bitcoin in the future? Yeah, so, you know, I like the term Bitcoin maximalist, and I think it does fairly accurately display my views and my opinions around the space. Really, it just comes down to being Bitcoin only. I, I, and that's kind of how I started to classify myself. A lot of people have become a little torn between the, ter the term of maximalist or toxic maximalist. But when it comes down to it, I'm Bitcoin only. That's my focus. Uh, as far as the future, I see Bitcoin being the dominant player uh, in the space for many years to come, decades to come. I think it's going to be the new base layer, economic base layer for society. And I see a lot of what's going on in the other protocols, for instance, like Ethereum, um, uh, Solana, a lot of other stuff that's happening out there. It's, it's very interesting, right? You know, what they're doing with smart contracts, what they're doing with NFTs. But I ultimately believe as a Bitcoin maximalist or as a Bitcoin only type of person that a lot of the things that are being done on those protocols will slowly migrate over to Bitcoin as the years go on. I, I think that you're going to see a lot of the smart contracts come to Bitcoin, whether that's on a side chain, whether it's through something like Stacks uh, or Liquid. Uh, I, I, I don't know for sure, 
But ultimately, we can already see that there are multiple layers being built um, and protocols being built around Bitcoin, which will enable it to have the same functionality as Ethereum or one of these other smart contract or NFT type platforms. Mm -hmm. So does that mean that you believe that in the long run, blockchains like Ethereum will be defunct or that Ether's price will diminish? What do you think? Yeah, you know, it's tough because obviously you have this multi-billion dollar protocol that has a significant amount of capital uh, uh, under their control. They could they could easily pivot and go some other direction. They could really, when it comes down to it, I view Ethereum and a lot of these other protocols more like a business. I mean, if you look at the way that Ethereum was founded, it's very much was founded like a security and people were sold on this idea that, um, you know, they that they would be able to buy in and own a piece of this protocol, uh, this world computer, and then they would be able to benefit from it. I'm not saying that Ethereum is going to disappear necessarily. I'm sure they'll find some way to to continue on and to stay relevant. But I do see a lot of problems. Let's and let's stick to Ethereum in particular, just because it is the number two protocol out there. And I, as someone who's you know Bitcoin only, the people are like, oh my gosh, well, how can you possibly think that the number two project is not going to be a big success. It's already, look how well it's done so far. But I see a lot of problems under the hood. Uh, in particular, I'm really concerned about the migration from proof of work to proof of stake. Currently, they're on a proof of work protocol, just same same type of protocol as, uh, as Bitcoin. And, uh, and eventually, they're going to be moving to proof of stake which means that they're going to get rid of all of the miners. They're not going to have any mining equipment. It's all going to be done um, through this new system where validators essentially become the miners. And it, the, the the selling point for them is right is like, oh, it'll use a lot less energy. So this is a positive thing, and we won't become we won't be reliant on these miners for security. Okay, sure, I, I understand that selling point, but but the big problem really here is is the migration part. It's not so much you know, is proof of stake better than proof of work, which is a purely different argument, right? And we, you know, someone very technical could have that argument with you. But the migration really for me is a big concern because when they leave proof of work and go to proof of stake, they're going to have to difficulty bomb the uh, proof of work chain, which means they're going to destroy it. They're going to make it completely unusable. And that's going to cause a lot of problems because the miners who currently are protecting it are as they get closer to that date where they realize, oh, you're you're going to fire us. Like that's why a lot of times bosses, like or jobs that you have, uh, as an example, I'll give. They don't ever they don't warn you like months in advance that they're going to fire you. That would be a really bad idea because a lot of times what ends up happening is those employees will uh, collude against you or they'll steal from you or they'll take your information, they'll take your data. So they so they oftentimes say you're fired and by the way get your stuff from your desk and we're going to walk you out with security because they want to make sure that you don't do anything on the way out. Well. That's not really possible with Ethereum. They're going to get into a situation where the miners, in my opinion, are going to start attacking the network as they start to really try to migrate to proof of stake. There's a bunch of different ways they could attack it. Some of them are called um, uh, banded attacks, time banded attacks, which is basically them like reorging the chain in order to you know make themselves get miner extracted value and improve their miner extracted value. But that's, I mean, that's getting even that's even getting too technical for most people. I, I think that the reason why the miners are going to attack is because they've been kind of screwed over by the Ethereum people for some time now. So they have been reducing the pay that goes to the miners from 5 ETH to 4 ETH to 3 ETH. And then with EIP 1559 recently uh, taking even more of the fees 
and giving it back to the users, which is, you know, the users probably love that. But again, these miners, I think are going to are going to attack Ethereum. And I think that it's going to be a really big problem for them when they try to migrate. So, Dennis, I want to explore more of your views for the first part of this interview. And a recent tweet of yours, you said that Bitcoin is going to infinity in dollar terms. Now, some people reading that would think that's a bit ridiculous, wouldn't they? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it must probably sound a bit ridiculous. That's that's true. It, it, it has become a meme to some extent. Um, but But, you know, let's compare it to the dollar. So, for instance, the premise of this argument is that the dollar always goes down in value and purchasing value. We, we, and this is true really for any currency and any, any fiat throughout history, they've always gone down in value. And the reason is because humans can't resist the temptation to debase those currencies because it's just quite a significant power to be able to have. The kings used to clip coins, you know, little edges off the coins, and then they would take those coins and then they would mint new ones. That doesn't, they're not making new money, right? They're not making more money. They're actually taking from the pile and creating almost like a stealing from the uh, the holders of that money. Same thing is going on with the dollar today. You see trillions and trillions of dollars being printed by the Federal, by the Federal Reserve. Um, and what that does is it debases the whole pie. You're not, you're not making more money. You're, you're, you're stealing from the holders and giving it to yourself. And this has been happening for decades and decades in the United States ever since we left the gold standard. It's why the gold standard was so important. It, it protected that. But now you have, we have this money. Okay, let's go back to it. We have this money that's always going down in value. And then we have Bitcoin, which cannot be manipulated. It cannot be debased ever. It's impossible. Like there is no human control over the monetary policy. It will always be 21 million. Um, and we will always have the halvings. And uh, eventually, once the t- we reach the 21 million, we'll be done. And nobody can change that ever, right? You know, we can make network changes, protocol changes that help make Bitcoin more usable, but we can't change the monetary policy. And it's really important. So now that you have this stuck monetary policy where it's 21 million, and you compare that to a dollar, which l- literally goes the opposite direction, you can gr- really quickly see why um, the number of infinity kind of makes sense because eventually, uh, the dollar, you know, maybe in our lifetime, maybe not, will will hyperinflate, will will completely be destroyed away, just like every major currency does. Every major currency eventually falls out of power, um, especially reserve currencies. And when they do, they lose a significant amount of value. So this this meme of of Bitcoin to infinity, right, is really just more because the dollar itself or fiat currencies have no floor, and Bitcoin like has no ceiling in the sense that the more productive we become as a society, the more we add value we add, that gets added into the monetary base layer. And that monetary base layer can't be debased. So it will always continue to go up in value over time. Might sound a little crazy to some people, but once you begin to wrap your hand around some of the economics, you can very clearly see that it is a reality and and, and it is taking place as we speak. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yeah, of course you are right. Trillions of dollars of uh, money has been printed by the US, by other major economies. But of course, every country is different and there are times when a country might need control over their monetary policy. The coronavirus pandemic, like we talked about in a Twitter space, as I asked you about this, was um, a good example because you had a situation where millions of people were without work, they needed income. And so many governments took the option of using quantitative easing to make sure that people could support themselves. So the question I asked you then, which I'll ask you again now, how would a Bitcoin 
only society deal with something like a coronavirus pandemic? What would happen if a country needed to enact policies that were specific for their own countries? Right. And I remember you asking me this question, Connor. I think it was, it's, it is a very good mm-hmm. question. It's one that I asked even kind of took, took the devil's advocate side of uh-huh. things in a recent episode that I did with uh, the guys that did WTF happened in 1971.com and asked the same question because it's an important one. Like the reason why, you know, these central banks do it, it is, it is to kind of fix what's going wrong. It is to try to make sure we don't uh, fall into some sort of hyperinflationary or hyperdeflationary type event. Um, central planning, I think done by robots is good, right? But we're not robots, we're human beings. And the tendency to debase and manipulate for our own benefit is too strong. That's kind of the view of Bitcoiners. And we see a world, let's 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 fast forward like at least 25, 50 years, right? Maybe a hundred years. Let's get to a world in our minds where uh, Bitcoin has completely taken over, right? Because that's kind of the, the question you're asking is what would a what would a Bitcoin world look like? And in a Bitcoin world, we are not 28, 30 trillion dollars in debt. You know, we're responsible with our money, just like you're supposed to be responsible with your own personal finances. Uh, for some reason, there's this belief that government is is different from the individual and that they don't need to be responsible with their money. I just fundamentally disagree with that. So we're living in a world where government is responsible with money. We're not 28 trillion dollars in debt. Um, we can't manipulate the monetary supply. So what is the option? Once the something bad has happened, that's when you do go into debt. You know, you, you have the situation where with, with coronavirus, you have the situation with COVID going on right now. It's really, really bad. It's really, really tough on a lot of different people. That's when you would go, okay, well, we're not in debt now, but now we can start adding debt because we need to do, to do that in order to get through this tough time. Once you get through the tough time, you pay down the debt. Unfortunately, that's not the world we live in today. The world we live in today is add more debt, manipulate the monetary supply, pump this thing to the moon. We're never going to have bear markets ever again. And that I think is going to lead to some pretty catastrophic stuff in the in the, in the future. We're, we're just delaying volatility. Once the volatility gets released, similar to 2008, when the volatility finally got released, it absolutely crushed the market. And I think the same thing is coming. I think we're over the edge of the cliff already right now. Uh, we're just flying midair. The inertia is carrying us forward. And the more money they print, the more it kind of keeps us going midair a little bit. But eventually that's going to lose its impact. You you can only um, uh, keep your inertia going for so long. And then we're just going to fall, I think, down into the into the cliffside. And that's why I tell people, you know, to buy Bitcoin, hold Bitcoin, even if uh, the market does crash, I think Bitcoin will be the, the one that survives and the one that will be the fastest horse coming out of all of this because it can't be manipulated. It cannot be debased. So uh, yeah, I, I, I think that debt is a, is a fine instrument for when it's needed, for when you have tough times. And that's how you kind of overcome uh, some of the difficult short-term experiences that come from tra- uh, traumatic periods in human history. Uh, I don't think we need to be able to control the monetary supply. I mean, we lived on a gold standard for a very, very long time. We didn't need to uh, you know, manipulate the monetary supply. That was done so that central bankers could have more control, more power. Um, but obviously, you know, getting a little bit down the road here. But yeah, I think debt is the ultimate tool for tough times, and it should be used that way. Not, It shouldn't be used as a way to like, you know, pay for everything all the time constantly, which is the current environment we live in today. And speaking of volatility, do you think Bitcoin's price will ever like flatten out? Or do you think that we'll continue to see continual upwards movement in Bitcoin's price for decades to come, for instance? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that there will be a period when you see a a great repricing. A lot of people 
have begun to see this as a true possibility, considering how all of the institutions are getting involved, all of the high net worth individuals are finally starting to take a look at Bitcoin, you have an ETF coming. I do believe within the next five to 10 years, you will see a really big swing upwards. And that's when the majority of Bitcoin's price will accumulate. But there eventually, right, when everybody's on a Bitcoin standard, there's no money, there's no uh, value to be added to the network because it's essentially the, you know, the majority of the world's value is being stored there. That's when I think you'll start to see the leveling off. It just, it's basic math. It can't, it can't literally go up like parabolic forever. It can go up forever in value, right? But not parabolic. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work. Uh, and it wouldn't function as money over the long term if, if it was like that. So most Bitcoiners, most Bitcoin only people like myself see that the Bitcoin will continue to go up in pro- maybe multiple cycles. We'll still get these swings, ups and downs, but eventually there will be one really big final push. Uh, when the majority of the market decides to realize, okay, yeah, this thing is, this is it. This is the future. This is the money we're using. The, the price will level off. You won't see these massive ups and downs become much less volatile. And I think that's, in my opinion, I think that's quite a ways off. I think we're at minimum 15 to 20 years away from that. Some people think that this is the cycle that that'll happen because of all of the interest from the institutions and um, and and the, the high net worth individuals. But I still think we have at least one more big cycle in our in um, you know in, in loaded up in the rocket. So we'll see as time goes on. No one can really predict where we're going. Another one of your tweets recently said, "I'm not advising you to buy Bitcoin. I'm telling you there is a time coming where you'll need Bitcoin if you want to buy bread, feed your family, pay for rent, save for retirement, and fuel your car. Fiat is dying. Eventually, no one will accept anything other than Bitcoin. So, assuming you're right, you think." just based on what you said, that they will see this in 15 to 20 years. Yeah, so I think that fiat is dying. I think that's very obvious that we are near the end of a lot of different cycles, uh, multi-decade long cycles. Uh, and I think that we, it's very apparent that even those at the top know that something is really wrong. The way they talk about this great reset, uh, the way they talk about you know build back better, th- they know that they need to do something drastic here and change something. And so Maybe they'll come up with another layer of fiat, like an SDR, who knows. But ultimately, I think we're headed down this path where uh, people are going to realize that this money this, this, that the governments are forcing them to use um, is losing value, and they're going to start to want to have something that holds value. In the long term, this is going to lead to a drastic uh, loss of faith, which we've already seen today in the market. We went from cash is king to cash is trash in a matter of 20 years, right? So... Uh, in the matter of my lifetime, uh, I've, I've seen people dramatically lose faith in the dollar, and I think that's going to increase. And if we can't turn back from the di- really perilous, dangerous direction that we're headed in, which I don't think we can, I think I think the Fed is pushed up uh, up into a corner. I don't think that they really have any other option but to keep printing. Uh, the moment they try to stop, uh, the markets will implode. I think that if they try to take the medicine like what Paul Volcker did in the 1970s, that they would crush the market so dramatically that I don't think anybody over the age of 70 would be able to have a a nice retirement, which really is a problem because most of the world is ran by, you know, people that are over 50, over 60, and they don't have any incentive to correct this path in the way that needs to be done, which what needs to be done is we need to stop printing money. We need to be responsible with the money. We need to take the medicine. We need to raise rates, but we can't do that because you'll have a global meltdown. Everything will completely be destroyed. Uh, the, The world would fall into chaos, right? And you probably see wars 
a lot of bad stuff could come from that. So they're going to continue printing over and over and over again. And that's why I kind of start to say, like, you're going to need to have Bitcoin in order to buy bread because you're, the dollar is about to hyperinflate, in my opinion. Uh, that's a strong opinion. A lot of Bitcoiners don't even agree with that stance. But I do agree that I, or I do believe that eventually the dollar will hyperinflate. And if you don't have Bitcoin, you're not going to be able to afford bread. You're not going to be able to afford rent. You're not going to be able to afford to pay your energy bill. So that's why I tell people, you know, you need to have this thing, not just to store your wealth, not just to, you know, make get wealthy, essentially, right? That's one part of it. I think also it's in a sense, it's like Noah's Ark. You want to get your value onto Noah's Ark and you want to store it there because the, the rains are coming and the floods are coming. Uh, and if you're not prepared, you are going to be out there all alone um, with the rising waters and you're going to be wishing that you had more Bitcoin. And the total market cap of all cryptocurrencies right now, it's about $2.4 trillion. Bitcoin represents about $1.1 trillion of that. And the global financial system's value is about $250 trillion. Based on this, $1.1 trillion versus $250 trillion, is it premature to say that it will be Bitcoin that replaces fiat? Could it be something else? Uh, Bitcoin is the greatest money that has ever been discovered in human history. Uh, I, I think it's just becoming obvious that it will replace the dollar. I, I, even gold itself can't really replace the current uh, economy that we live in, it, the digital economy we rely on. We need something that is purely digital, in my opinion. And I don't see any other thing that could could replace it. Obviously, in a short-term type of situation where you have uh, you know, this great reset and the Build Back Better crew trying to fix what's going on, they may do some sort of SDR, like I had mentioned before, where they do a basket of currencies. And that could potentially be a be something that would replace the dollar in the short term. Also, you have CBDCs, which really is just a digital dollar, which, which for the most part already exists uh, currently with the Fed. The Fed has their own digital dollar. And so I don't think that by saying, you know, oh, well, CBDCs are going to replace the dollar. I, I don't know if that's a true re replacement as much as it is more just like digitizing the dollar. So, yeah, I think in the long term, you're going to see more and more money come to Bitcoin. And you said 250 trillion. I, I didn't remember where, where you said you got that number from, but the total addressable marketplace for Bitcoin is upwards of 900 trillion or more. So I think we're, we are at the very beginning of this thing. And it's for those of you who think that we... Uh, you know, we're that Bitcoin is already done, that it's already uh, acquired most of its value. I'm of the personal opinion that that Bitcoin is going to go to multi millions. So I think one million is pretty bearish at this point. Ultimately, we see myself and most Bitcoiners that that study this market that pay a lot of attention to where it's going, see it going to at least five million, if not $10 million per Bitcoin. I don't have a timetable for that because I don't think anybody really knows how um, how long it will take to get there. But 2.4 trillion is a good number, right? Because you're looking at a very small number compared to uh, the potential where Bitcoin could go. I think also when you when you take into effect the, and we don't even have to take a lot of that that number, the 900 trillion, just a small amount, because there's a multiplier effect with Bitcoin. So for every dollar, they, and Bank of America and other organizations did a study on this. For every dollar that goes into Bitcoin, the it actually increases the market cap by upwards of 120 dollars. So it, you know if you put 100 if you put a trillion dollars into Bitcoin, that's like, you know, potentially upwards of, you know, a hundred trillion dollar market cap increase. So it's, we're still kind of doing the research to study why this, uh, why this plays out this way. We're not really sure exactly why for every dollar you go up 120, but some theories are, it's based around the idea that very little amounts of Bitcoin is actually available for purchasing. So when you buy, uh, when you, when you go to buy Bitcoin, uh, there's like, I think, 
2.5 to 3 million actually available in circulation. The large majority of Bitcoin is either lost or stored long-term with long-term hodlers who are not interested in selling whatsoever. So yeah, we're, we're extremely early and I, and I cannot wait to see the next four to five years, maybe 10 years un, um, unfold and watch Bitcoin really start to surprise some people. Now, whether or not you're right or you're wrong, many of the Bitcoin maximalists I see on crypto Twitter insist that they don't offer financial advice, but still urge their followers to buy crypto anyway. Now, I'd argue some of these posts <laughs> downright scare people into making an investment or give them a false sense of confidence that Bitcoin's guaranteed to be worth millions one day. Are some maximalists making promises that they can't keep? And aren't you worried that newcomers to this space could end up losing money by taking some of these tweets at face value? Uh, personally, I would be more worried that people lose money by holding on to cash. I would be more worried that people lose money by investing in zombie companies. I mean, 20% of the S&P 500 are zombie companies. I would be more worried that people are not going to be able to, you know, essentially be able to store their wealth and to uh, have a future. I, it's it's the, the, the tables have really turned here. It's not, is Bitcoin going to survive? It's, you know, is is the world going to survive? Are are a lot of these companies going to survive on the other end of this? Like, there's a lot of risk involved when you buy stocks, right? Um, they could increase the equity. They could dilute the essentially the value of your shares. Um, you're depending on the revenue of that company to be able to continue to to bring revenue in. Which that's why a lot of these really strong tech companies like Apple and Amazon and Google have essentially become the new store of value because there's a strong belief that they're going to survive and that they're never going to go away, right? And that's why the FANG stocks are just exploding, have exploded out of control in value. Not because people see, oh, wow, these companies are really, you know, killing it this year. The, the, you know, the PEs are like out of control for these companies. They're, I mean, some of them are, are just astronomical beyond where they should be. And it's because there's a strong belief and understanding that these companies will survive far into the future, especially as we become more digital and more remote because of the shutdowns, because of everything that's happened in the last 18 to 20 months. And this this belief is the same belief that I have for Bitcoin, only stronger because they cannot debase it. They can, there's no equity, right? So they can't issue more equity. It's 21 million forever. But also I'm not dependent on any company uh, continuing to increase their revenue or maintain their revenue. I'm not. I'm not dependent on anyone in, at all. It's Bitcoin's value is, is is inherent because of the properties, the monetary properties that are built within it. So, I think that when you say uh, is should people be worried? I, I could see that in like 2013, 2014. This th that could be a little hyperbolic to try to say make these claims. But in the year 2021, I am more confident than ever that Bitcoin is going to be the ultimate store of value and that it's going to take monetary premium from anything that has monetary premium and store of value premium from anything that is is used as a way or a means to store value that includes art that includes bonds the S&P 500 real estate uh, fiat itself gold I mean gold is the obvious one right it's so obvious because people already understand this big this gold 2.0 theory their uh, narrative that that is being thrown around and you can already see today that Bitcoin has, in my opinion, if you look at the charts, Bitcoin has been t taking monetary premium from gold this entire time. So like if you're telling me to worry like, oh, well, maybe people should be worried holding on to Bitcoin that maybe we're being a little too hyperbolic. I'm like, 
man, I'm screaming at my friends that are holding gold. And I'm like, you're insane if you hold on to gold. I, I wouldn't even say that about silver, right? Because silver has an 80-20 uh, monetary premium versus utility use, right? So 20% of its, uh, its value is derived from its its store value property, its, its properties as money. And 80% is industrial. Whereas like gold, it's the opposite. Like almost gold is almost entirely monetary premium, store value premium, which means a lot of that is going to be stripped away. And I see gold like dramatically dropping in value. So if anybody needs to be worried in this market, it's the people like Peter Schiff who are uh, going around telling people to buy gold uh, when Bitcoin is by far in a way the better uh, place to store your value. So in your view, 2021 is different from 2013 and 2014. I mean, we did still see prices of Bitcoin go from $65,000 in April to $30,000 in July. So short term, you know, there are risks for people who are trying to invest who don't necessarily know what they're doing. But to that end, isn't telling people to take on more cheap debt to buy as much Bitcoin as possible just downright dangerous? Uh, yeah, I mean, I I go back and forth when it comes to this conversation. But uh, the the what's going on with the Fed and what's going on in every country around the world, every central bank in the world, has made me more and more confident that we need to get as many people out of fiat as possible. And obviously, people need to understand their own risk profile, and they need to understand uh, they need to understand their own personal finances. You don't want to go into debt if you have no way of paying, you know, the, the making payments on the loan itself. But when it comes down to it, most of what I call for is for people to take cheap debt against assets. So if you have a home and you have a very large amount of equity in that home, it only makes sense to pull that equity out and to buy Bitcoin because when you got when you when you when you get take out the debt, you're getting it a dollar denominated and dollars are always going down in value, which means that that debt is going to become easier and easier to pay off as time goes on. And as we were talking about earlier, Bitcoin is always going up in value compared to the dollar. So this is kind of what Michael Saylor is doing. Like he's taking out, constantly taking out more and more cheap debt in order to buy Bitcoin. And this is a strategy that anyone should be utilizing if they're in the same position to be able to do so. I don't think it's irresponsible at all to take out debt to buy Bitcoin as long as you are financially feasible to do so. I wouldn't tell someone to do take out a loan on um, you know, a credit card loan with 30% interest rates. That doesn't make sense. This is I'm talking about purely cheap debt here, like 3%, 4% interest rates. Um, this is the ultimate play right now is to get... Is, is to take any asset that you have and get che as much cheap debt against it as, as they'll allow you to do so, while also staying within responsible means of being able to pay, make those payments. But uh, in the short term, yeah, Bitcoin's price, it goes up, it goes down. But in the long term, it always goes up. This is, this is a trend that's been there from the very beginning. And I think that it's going to continue for decades to come. Um, and in many countries, Dennis, we've seen you know, large numbers of consumers say they don't understand Bitcoin. In El Salvador, most businesses and consumers at the time of the Bitcoin law were against it becoming legal tender. Doesn't this suggest that Bitcoin becoming the world's only currency is impossible? And does the macho culture that we see on crypto Twitter, things like these laser eye profile pictures and talk of orange pilling people, doesn't that just put people off? Doesn't that make everyday consumers just think these people are weird? I don't want involved in it. Yeah, I mean, there is a little bit of that for sure. The, the Bitcoin culture uh, is very strong and sometimes people think it's a little odd. Um, personally, I, I, I love a lot of all the Bitcoin culture. I think it's great. But um, but yeah, as far as El Salvador is concerned, you know, my parents have lived there for years and I couldn't have been more excited to see what's happening there. I, I think that 
the, the reason why you see so much pushback in El Salvador in particular is because they have a lot of fear around currency changes. So 20, roughly 20 years ago, they left their Salvadorian dollar and came to the US dollar. During that time, during that transition, they were told that both of these currencies would still main, uh, remain in existence and in issuance, and that this was just a way to give people more options. But what happened was they ended up getting rid of the Salvadorian dollar completely and went became fully U.S. dollarized, right? So that felt like a lie to them, to the people there. A lot of per- people were hurt economically and financially because of that, those moves. Now you see the same thing happening, what what seems like the same thing happening in El Salvador. And so it really it comes down to just a distrust of government uh, and that they think that they're seeing the same steps play out. They don't trust Bukele. I can understand why. He has very dictator-like tendencies. He has used the military to force votes. He just recently moved to have the Supreme Court allow him to run again. But, you know, maybe that's necessary for him to continue his vision. I don't know. I'm not a big fan of, you know, dictatorships, but um, but this is something that people like are seeing like, okay, well, maybe he needs to ultimately stay in power to make sure that he continues this move. And I'm like, okay, well, sure, that's an argument, but still I'm, I'm very strongly against any sort of form of dictatorship. Um, I don't like centralized power, just like I don't like centralized power in crypto uh, cryptocurrencies. I don't like it in, in human governance models either. So I uh, so I, I think that long term here, you're going to see Bitcoin be a positive impact on El Salvador. In the short term, I think it's going to be tumultuous and there could be some problems and it could be used as a tool to fight back against Bukele with his opposition. He has a lot of people there that really don't like him and the amount of power that he has. And they're using Bitcoin as this like, okay, this is why, see, this is a rallying cry. This guy is going to do the same thing that happened to us 20 years ago. We can't trust him. We got to get rid of him. We got to get rid of Bitcoin. So yeah, short term, I think tumultuous long term, because of my views on Bitcoin, I think it will be a net positive for the country. Yeah. And you are right. I remember speaking to someone in El Salvador who was talking about when they moved to the US dollar back in 2001. And um, he was saying, he was telling me that when the dollar was first introduced, it meant actually that they were paying more for groceries because the dollar cost was higher than it would have been in uh, the Cologne. And it's weird to hear you um, with your answer there, because um, Ethereum's co-founder this week described El Salvador as reckless in how it made Bitcoin legal tender. And he also said, this was in a Reddit comment, he said, Bitcoin maximalists who have uncritically praised President Nayib Bukele should be ashamed. So in a way, you're kind of on the same side with him there, aren't you? On the same side as Vitalik? Yeah. Is, that what you're, is that the question? Mm-hmm. I, I, wouldn't say I'm as, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm on the same side, but I just do see... And this is the thing, man. It's like, okay, you have the internet, right? You have Twitter. And a lot of times there's a lot of noise and there's a lot, and there's you know it's hard to find the signal. There's plenty of Bitcoiners who are worried and concerned about what's going on in El Salvador from a governance standpoint. There's plenty of us who are don't like Bitcoin being forced um, onto a nation. Like a lot of us are not big fans of government overreach, but because of our views on Bitcoin and because of uh, where we see the world going, we do think economically that it will be a positive impact in the long term for them. But yeah, I'm not a big fan of some of the things that Bukele has done. I think that he has really started to position himself as as a dictator. Uh, my family that lives on the ground there for, for years, they said that he had dictator-like tendencies 
um, as this kind of news broke. And it seems like he's just only moved further in the direction um, of of uh, shoring up more and more power. He has he has a lot of political power uh, in the legislative body there as well. So it's not like he's just running around, you know, putting guns to people's heads and telling them what to do. There are a lot of people in power that are on his side, but it does seem like they are allowing him to continue to grow his power, especially the way that he replaced the, the members of the Supreme Court and then also use that same Supreme Court to allow him to run again. He shouldn't be allowed to run uh, for office again. He, he's There's term limits. But he removed the term limit. And so now we kind of are just like, well, it seems pretty obvious this, this guy is, is is bent to stay in power. So uh, if he doesn't run again, I'll be pretty surprised. But yeah, I'm not a big fan of all the things that are going on. I, I think that I think it's interesting because Vitalik has a, a point, but also I think ultimately he is uh, somewhat um I don't know if you want to use the word jealous necessarily it might not be the right word, <laughs> right. but this man has also met with Vladimir Putin, um, who is a, who is a, uh, very, very, uh, hardcore dictator. And so I don't know if he should be throwing punches when it comes to talking about, uh, the deployment of Bitcoin, uh, in, in El Salvador, when he's going around meeting with, uh, what some people would call murderous dictators. So just changing tack now, Dennis, cause I do want to ask you about, what's been happening with YouTube this week. And Anthony Pompliano's account was briefly taken down, was reinstated. I know for a fact as well that one of your episodes was also affected. What's been going on? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty wild. Um, I think that regardless of the reasons why Pomp's video or entire channel was taken mm -hmm. down, I think that we can all agree that the control and the power that these uh, platforms have is really gotten so out of control. And I think that we need to have something change here because the ability for a platform to delete someone's entire business with a click of a button is pretty disgusting. Uh, some people are saying that, you know, oh, he well, he broke the rules. He should know better. And it's like, man, to be honest, I had my video taken down recently because someone said a single word that wasn't allowed. And it wasn't anything crazy. It was just like, uh, so, so he said rigged bet in, in regards to the U S election, because he was, he had made a bet on the election and he decided to say, um, you know, that he didn't want to pay it because he felt like it was, he personally felt like it was a rigged bet. Those are the words he used. And they took the whole video down on the, um, on the premise that we were questioning the validity of the U S election. And I was just like, that's nuts. First of all, because he just said one, one phrase, he didn't go in deep or in detail of why he felt that way. It was the entire video, which was an hour long, had nothing to do with that topic whatsoever. It was the very end of the video when he was kind of talking about his opinions. Um, and so, you know, whatever, that's good to know. I'm glad to know now that I, I got to be very careful around that. And I'm, I'm fine to, uh, to oblige by those rules. But also it's just like, people are saying, oh, well, he should have known. I didn't know. I didn't know that that was a rule. There are these, these policy pages for these companies, these platforms, they're miles long. Nobody reads them. They need to have some sort of system where they have, you know, these are the things that'll get your entire channel deleted. This is the thing that will get in a whole video deleted. Like don't come close to these things. That doesn't exist. You, you, there's no specific list. And a lot of times they don't even tell you why the channel went down. They'll just say, oh, it was harmful. Oh, it was it, uh, uh, it was, it was violent. There was, vi there was violence or it was whatever, right? They don't even give you a specific, um, timestamp 
uh, for why your video was taken down. So yeah, I'm glad that Pomp's uh, channel is back up. I don't like censorship. I don't like when uh, these platforms have so much power that they can delete an entire person's business. And people are like, oh, well, that's that's their company. They can do whatever they want. I don't think that flies anymore when you're talking about how centralized and how reliant, um, how centralized these platforms are and how reliant we have become on them. If you get deleted from Twitter as a politician, I mean, you're, you're, that's a death sentence. If you're a content creator and you get deleted from YouTube, that's a death sentence. There are no other platforms. Someone tried to make the example. I think it was you even that said, you know, there's a bar, um, you know, if you get kicked out because of how the way you're behaving, then, you know, that's, that's up to the bar to do so. I mean, I would agree. And I agree with that premise, but the, but the problem is there's only one bar. So <laughs> if, if you get deleted from the, if you get kicked out of the one bar, I mean, you're done for life. You, you can never, ever go out to drink ever again. Um, that's a little too much control. That's essentially the control that these, these platforms have. So I was glad to see that him, him get back on. I don't think my video will go back up. Um, uh, it was unfortunate that I didn't know that he couldn't say those words. Uh, I, I, we were racking our brains trying to figure out why the content got pulled. So it, it just, it's becoming difficult. Now, I don't think the solution is necessarily should we run in and overregulate these people and get the get the government involved because oftentimes once you get the government involved, you just make the situation even worse. But but I do think something needs to be done on the part of YouTube to uh, to bring some transparency around this subject, to bring more allow for more warnings, allow for more uh, communication back and forth with the content creator or someone with, especially with someone who has, you know, over 20, 30,000 subscribers who's spent their entire life, uh, you know, or building up this platform. They've been, it's their entire career. You do, you get deleted from YouTube. You're done. Like you, there's nowhere to go. You're no one's going to watch your stuff. So I'm really glad he got back on and I'm, I, but I'm also troubled by the fact that it was so quick and easy for them to just take him down. I half agree with you here because I definitely think that people's livelihoods shouldn't be put into jeopardy like this way with accounts deplatformed without good reason. More transparency, of course, welcomed. And of course, I do believe as well, social networks do need to state why channels are taken down, do need to provide specific timestamps of when uh, videos turn problematic. But at the same time, when it comes to YouTube, I mean, you've got moderators, some of whom are overzealous, some of whom are quite laid back. It's entirely down to their own personal discretion. They've got loads and loads of content to review. YouTube's guidelines do provide, in many cases for certain topics, specific examples of what will land you in trouble. Granted, the ones that I've seen specifically are more about things like the US election, more about things like spreading COVID misinformation, not necessarily loads out there about Bitcoin. But I do not think that this amounts to censorship in the fact that YouTube is making a concerted effort to silence Bitcoiners and ensure that there's no Bitcoin content on their platform. There are thousands upon thousands of videos. So I don't know. It's just when people say censorship, it just, it it rankles me a bit for that reason. Sure. Well, and you know, regardless of, of our opinions around whether this was a concerted effort by YouTube to censor Bitcoiners in particular, uh, I, I think that's, you know, that's a, you know, a separate conversation from the fact that we do need to make sure we push back when, 
when we are wrongfully censored when something does happen. I, listen, I didn't appeal my my video. I I saw the very clear, clean, te- clean text of why that video was taken down. I just think there needs to be better communication on the part of YouTube to allow people to know what is and isn't allowed. Um, because mine was literally a word, and I think that that we didn't even get into questioning anything. It was just a quick word on why he didn't pay his bet. Uh, but, but I do think we need to make sure as a community to push back when we are censored or when we are shut down or whatever word you want to use to make sure that you, they know that, listen, we're not going to put up with this. We're not going to put up with this crap. Like if you try to come for us, we're going to make a real big problem for you. We're going to make a real big pu- public stink about it and make sure that, uh, you don't just get away with this kind of stuff. So uh, that's what a lot of people have been saying is that it's important that we just make sure we push back, um, so that they know that we are willing to push back and that we'll make a public showing of it as well. So censorship or not, I'm glad that we, everyone is becoming very vocal and pushing back against YouTube. Mm -hmm. Um, And last question from me, Dennis, I did want to talk as well about politics. Like we said in the intro, you are heavily involved in the political space. And can you tell us what the current attitudes are towards Bitcoin among American lawmakers? Is this an issue that's driving decision-making at the ballot box? And also, um, are we seeing many pro-Bitcoin candidates coming through at the moment? Yeah, there's a lot of politicians that are coming around to Bitcoin. So we've seen Ted Cruz, uh, Cynthia Loomis, We've also seen um, Hickenlooper's office interested, uh, and that's just from you know the Senate. Anthony, Dave, uh, Anthony Davis is interested as well. Uh, but uh, I think now we're going to be seeing a, a very strong acceleration in politics, uh, the conversation around Bitcoin, because the mining, a lot of the mining has come here, and a lot of the ne- and the network infrastructure has come to the United States. So there's more business interest in protecting Bitcoin. Uh, not only from the mining aspect, but also I think just the institutional level, uh, you're going to have an ETF launching here soon. So there are some politicians who do want to ban Bitcoin or over-regulate Bitcoin. And it's my goal to try to push back against those. That's why I'm working really hard to push back against Brad Sherman in California's 30th district to ensure that uh, he, you know, he either stays quiet or we can potentially remove him and replace him with someone that's very pro Bitcoin. That's, that's my efforts there. But the general, I think the general mood is changing quite dramatically. So it was for a little while, this level of like not being sure about what's going on, but then everybody really woke up to the conversation when they attempted to slip in the crypto tax reporting amendment. And I don't have anybody with problem with people paying taxes. I think everyone should pay their taxes. I think that it's completely fair for, um, for the government to try to, you know, do what they need to do to try to, you know, that's their, that's their prerogative, right? They're going to try to make sure people are being paying their taxes, but that's not what this, the issue that people had with this amendment. The problem with this amendment was it had, um, regulations that were going to be created that would make it impossible for certain actors to comply to. So they wanted anybody that ran a node, anybody that ran a miner to report KYC AML information on the people that they interact with, which is at, which is impossible for some of these people. So it's impossible for someone as a node um, to, to to track AML KYC information. They, they, there's no way for them to access that information. There's no way for them to collect it at all. So it would make running a node illegal overnight, which is which is what they're doing. They're going to push this thing through Congress. And they're basically saying, okay, we're going to put a gun to your head now because this is the situation we're in. They're like, well, well don't worry. We're, we won't enforce it that way. We won't enforce it that way. But that's like putting a gun to someone's head and saying like, okay, don't worry. I won't pull the trigger. So it, it really did wake a lot of people up. And a lot of us have become very active, including myself, but tons of other great Bitcoiners out there have become very active as well. 
and you can see a lot of PACs, super PACs forming. You saw that every major company in the space has hired a policy advisor. So everyone from Bitcoin Magazine to, un to Unchained Capital to, uh, to Riot Blockchain, in particular, the, the mining companies have hired a lot of, of policy advisors to help them um, kind of traverse this this period, this difficult period that we're in right now. The one I'm really interested in is, uh, is, is it seems like the people over at Twitter um, or Jack Dorsey in particular have become very interested in the political space. And so I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to be working uh, and, and hopefully working alongside them at some point. My next event that I have coming up is called the, it's a bipartisan Bitcoin event that I put on with Natalie Burnell. And the last one we had, Jeff Booth, Preston Pish, uh, Caitlin Long, CJ Wilson, Bradley Rettler. We had Ron Hammond from the Blockchain Association uh, and a few other speakers and some candidates that came up. But next, the next one we're doing is going to be here soon. And I'm really excited to potentially have some very important players from the various organizations, the various businesses come and speak and kind of share their views around where things need to go. I think the mood has changed dramatically in this country. And I think it's going to be the next uh, chapter in Bitcoin's book. I think El Salvador was last chapter. Uh, I think the chapter before that was Michael Saylor, but I think the chapter we're in right now is the United States uh, pushing back, fighting back against the uh, you know unruly uh, legislation and regulation here in this country. And I think we're going to have a ton of success and it's going to shock a lot of people around the world. Dennis Porter, it was fascinating talking to you and make sure you do check out the Twitter spaces he hosts. Uh, they are very insightful and very rich variety of voices you'll find on those as well. Dennis, pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Connor. I appreciate you for bringing me on. And that's it for this week's Coin Market Recap. I'm Connor Sefton and thank you so much for listening. And just a reminder that this show does not offer financial advice. Please do follow our podcast and don't forget that we also have a daily newsletter that delivers all of the top stories to your inbox. You can head to coinmarketcap.com forward slash Alexandria 2 for easy to understand features on how crypto works. And if you've got any feedback or questions about what we've discussed on the show, our email is podcast at coinmarketcap.com. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Bye bye.